You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Would turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you've been tracking with us, we are studying our way through the book of Philippians. And uh, we've spent about the last six years or so in chapter 1. And uh, not exactly. I've only been here like two months. But it's been a while. We've worked our way through it. And now we're in chapter 2 this morning. And we're going to be focusing on verses 1 to 4. Our series is called To Live is Christ. That's not original. That's right out of the text. To Live is Christ. And uh, it's very much our focus in this series about living our lives on mission for the Lord. And uh, the title of the sermon today is Preserving and Producing Christian Unity. Preserving and Producing Christian Unity. Now again, I said our focus is chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. But for context, I just want to begin reading uh, chapter 1 and verse 27. Because it kind of flows together. Okay, so so we're focusing on 2, verses 1 to 4. But I'm going to read beginning at verse 27 of chapter 1. Paul says to the church of Philippi, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I start here because this exhortation in this verse, I think, is sort of the the main exhortation for this whole section that we're in right now. So what we're going to study here, what we're going to read together in chapter 2, is a continued outworking of this exhortation to let our manner of life be worthy or be fitting or be suitable to the gospel of Christ. So that, Paul says, verse 27, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So we said a week ago, you know, we're asked the question to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does that mean? Well, I think it mainly means being united on mission together for Christ. That, that's what he's saying here, striving side by side together for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. The Church of Philippi had many opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. When Paul planted the church of Philippi, he faced serious opposition, and he still was facing opposition, and the church of Philippi was too, facing challenges as they shared the gospel, this struggle. So, so that's the first word of chapter 2, verse 1. The main heading here is, is thinking about living a life that's worthy of the gospel, that's being united on mission. Now, if we're going to be united on mission together, then we've got to be united in fellowship together. And that's where he goes in chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, notice how personal that is, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. When I think about the subject of Christian unity, it makes me think of tempered glass. Tempered glass. In my previous life, I worked in a hockey arena in Peterborough, the home of the Peterborough Peets. And um, uh, one of the jobs that we frequently had to do in, in that arena was to uninstall and reinstall the glass that's around the rink, like around the boards. Years, some of you are of a vintage, when you can recall, that used to be mesh, like wire mesh or chicken wire. Well, I think we agree that, that tempered glass or plexiglass, they use in many arenas, is uh, a lot better. You can see through it. It's uh, nicer for the players. They got tangled up in that. And um, uh, in, in our arena, we had, uh, we had lots, of, lots of hockey, we had lots of shows, lots of concerts, and so when there was a concert in or a show, they'd want the glass down, because it's a sound barrier, so they'd take this glass down. And um, uh, now I remember, I don't, know, I don't know much about glass, okay, I'm not a glass blower or anything like that, I don't know much about, but all I know is this, is that whenever we were taking this glass down, the bosses would be yelling, careful, careful, careful. Because the thing with tempered glass is, it's incredibly strong. I mean, a puck can hit it at 95 miles an hour, and it's, it's unaffected by it. Players can slam into it, and it, it holds firm. But the thing with tempered glass is if you chip the corner of that glass, or the edges, it will compromise, it can even break it. And it, it struck me, always struck me funny, you know, like this thing is just like, I've just, I've seen pucks like bang, bang, hit this thing. And here we are handling it, careful, careful. They weren't worried about our safety. They were worried about the glass being damaged. I think tempered glass is a good picture of Christian unity. Christian unity is strong because it's God-given. It's sealed by the Spirit. It's a powerful testimony to the world. There, there is a sense in which Christian unity is, is strong like tempered glass. However, while our unity is strong, it has to be handled with care. Because as strong as it is, there's also a fragility about it. It requires attention. Jesus exhorted his disciples to love because living in unity requires intentionality. It requires attention and care. Christian unity cannot be neglected. It cannot be taken for granted. It has to be preserved. It has to be maintained. It's like tempered glass. It's strong, but it's also, in a sense, fragile. And when Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, this issue was right at the forefront of his mind. And you can see it reading through the letter. He is very concerned about their unity together as brothers and sisters in Christ. The church at Philippi, just like ours, roughly speaking, was about 10 years old at this time. And it had a 10-year history of beautiful unity and a faithful gospel ministry that, flew, that, that flowed out of that, that unity. But Paul knew that there was trouble brewing He'd gotten reports and he'd heard about some things that were happening in the church and he could see that, there, that there, there was friction in the fellowship. 
Where once there was harmony, there now was for you musical people, there now were notes of dissonance. There were signs of division in this church, and Paul knew that they needed to take deliberate action in response to that to preserve and promote their unity. And if they didn't, they would be in real trouble, and their mission would flatline. And so that's why he's writing this section. That's what he's doing here. In fact, when you read chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, as we just did, you see he's getting right down to the nitty-gritty of of preserving and producing Christian unity. And it's important for us to see that because you know that the Holy Spirit has not given us the book of Philippians so that we would know stuff about the church of Philippi. I mean, honestly, really, I don't care about the church of Philippi at all. I'm no interest there. I don't go there. I'm never going to go there. The church, it's, it's, it's history. And the Spirit of God doesn't really care that you and I know a bunch of stuff about the church of Philippi, but he does care that we understand the message that, he, that was given to this church because it's a message for us that's critical for us to know. He's given us this text not to satisfy our curiosity, but to protect and to guard and to maintain our unity. Because you see, the same danger that was lurking in the shadows of the church of Philippi lurks in the shadows of every New Testament church, of every New Covenant church, even ours. The church of Jesus Christ is an awesome force in this world against which the gates of hell will not prevail. But in the local church, loved ones, our kryptonite, our Achilles heel, our vulnerability is division and disunity because God is not pleased to show his glory or to move in power when his children are fighting. So how do I avoid that? How do we avoid that? How do we, how do we sustain our harmony? How do we preserve and produce unity? Well, that's what this little section here teaches us about. And it's, as I see it, is in four parts. First, there's the basis of Christian unity in verse 1. Then we're going to see the basics of Christian unity in verse 2. Then verse 3, we're going to see the barrier to Christian unity. And then fourthly, finally, the breakthrough of Christian unity. All right? So let's start. Let's take those one at a time. Let's start with the basis. The basis of Christian unity there in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, of course the word if there could really be rendered since, like since there is. He's not saying like, he's not saying if like it's a question mark, right? No more than if I said, you know, if I said to my kids, if I'm your father, then you'll do what I say. I'm not calling for a paternity test, okay? No, I I am your father, therefore since I am, or if I am, and be assured I am, that's the same idea here. If there is, and be assured there is, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. This is the basis of Christian unity. It's what we share in Christ. It's all the things that we share in Christ. This is the basis of Christian unity, or it's the grounds of Christian unity, or it's the reason for Christian unity. Four things here that Paul identifies. One, he talks about encouragement. What we have in Christ is we have encouragement in Him. Think about the encouragement that we have, the, uh, the comfort for our souls, even in the midst of troubled times that we have in Christ. And, and think of the encouragement that Paul has emphasized already for the Philippians. Remember back in chapter 1 and verse 6, 
he reminded them of the fact that God was still at work in them and he would bring to completion the work that he began. In chapter one and verse 12, he encouraged them with the truth that even though, even though there is real hardship, the gospel was going forward, not in spite of the hardship, but because of the hardship, that the gospel's unstoppable. And he encouraged them with that truth. And in chapter one and verse 20, he reminded them, he encouraged them about, of their unbreakable hope. And in verse 23 of chapter one, about uh, the realities that the wonderful, uh, the wonderful hope we have of being with Christ. In one and 29, he uh, reminded them about the sovereignty of God, encouraged them about the fact that their God is sovereign. He's sovereign in their belief. He's sovereign in their trouble. There is much encouragement here in, in Philippians, and uh, it's a reminder to us that Paul identifies here, listen, there is encouragement in Christ. We've got, we've got comfort in him. We've got comfort from love. He says if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love. In Christ, you and I have an unconditional love. It's agape love is the Greek word, agape. It's this loyal, faithful, secure love that we have in Christ. It's a love like we sing sometimes, right? It's a love, your love never fails. Love never gives up. Your love never runs out on me. That is a, that is a rare love, is it not? But it's a love that we find in abundance in Christ from God. And there's comfort from that. Think of this church going through hard times and be re being reminded about the, the faithful love of Christ. Think about whatever you're going through and be reminded that God loves you in Christ. And he doesn't just say it, he's demonstrated it through Christ. It's not like maybe, I don't know if you have a yearbook and all, do they still do yearbooks? No? Okay, all right, so some things haven't gone away. All right, so he's still, in the yearbook, you know, you, you, get, you graduate high school, I got my yearbook somewhere, and there's all kinds of stuff people have written on there, all great, very kind, warm, fuzzies, you know, like, hey, you know, you're the man, and you can't wait to see what happens in your future, and, you know, expressions of love, and love you, bro, and the affection, and stuff like that. And the shocking thing is, now maybe it's different for you, the shocking thing is, is that the vast majority of people who told me that they love me and, and can't wait to see what happened to me, I've never seen since they signed my book. It's like we graduated and just went off into different planets. That's not what God's love's like. It's constant, it's faithful. It doesn't change with the times. The feelings don't fade. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in her phenomenal children's book. She calls God's love, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. There's comfort in that love. There's participation in the Spirit, Paul says, or fellowship in the Spirit, or friendship, partnership, communion, as John says in 1 John 1, our communion, our fellowship is with Jesus and with one another in Jesus. The Spirit unites us to Christ. Do you know that? The Spirit unites you to Jesus. So you have union with him. You are joined to Jesus. And your future is inseparably united to his. What a fellowship. What a participation that the Spirit gives to us. We belong, we belong to God. That's what this is talking about here. And there's also affection and sympathy. My Bible used the word sympathy. I think just as easily could use the word compassion. There's affection. There's compassion. God has demonstrated a love for us, and he has expressed to us deep compassion. Remember what Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
cares for you. It's a heartfelt love, not a reluctant kind of love. That's, that isn't love. The Lord saw us, has seen, he saw us in our misery, in our sin, and he had compassion on us, and he still does. He still cares for us, and we share that compassion together that, that's produced in us. Now, you see what Paul's doing here is he's, he's giving here a basis for Christian unity. And that basis is fourfold. He says, listen, listen, is there, is there not any encouragement in Christ? Of course there's encouragement in Christ. Is there comfort from love? Is there, is there comfort and consolation from the love, the faithful love of God for us in Christ? Absolutely. Is there participation in the Spirit? Do you have, does the Spirit indwell you? Does the Spirit unite you to Jesus and join you together? Yes. Is there affection and sympathy? Yes, we have all of these things. All these things are true and real in Christ. So therefore, it's got to have an impact on you. And I just want to pause here and point this out. Because Paul, and I guess me as a preacher, I'm going to call you to do something in just a few short minutes. I'm going to call you to something that will not happen just by willpower. Like you can't, you can't, you can't carry out the directives of Philippians 2 by just deciding, okay, I'm going to do this. I sort of sounded like the macho man there, right? <laughs> yeah, ooh, dig it. It's not, not going to happen like that. You can stand in front of the mirror and say, I'm going to love them today. That was not in my notes. That just sort of happened. Out in the wall there, I actually want to see if I could bring it in without causing too much trouble. It's out in the lobby. You'll see it when you leave. There's a banner that gives the, the pillars of our church. Unapologetic preaching, God help me. Unashamed adoration. Unceasing prayer. Unafraid witness. And what's the fifth one? Uncommon community. You don't get that by willpower. You get that on the strength of it's produced by that which God gives us. Christian unity is a product of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why the main heading of this whole section, the main exhortation is conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. So this will happen, this Christian unity thing happens, it launches from these realities of all that God gives to us in Christ. This is the basis of Christian unity. It's what we share in Jesus. Now, since we all share these things, of course, now Paul's going to say this, this now has to impact your life, particularly your attitude. Notice verse 2, complete my joy, so pastoral, so pastoral, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I'm just calling this the basics of Christian unity, and it has to do with our attitude, the basics of Christian unity has everything to do with our attitude in light of the basis of Christian unity, of all that God has given to us. Paul says, complete my joy. In other words, you've given me so much joy already at seeing you converted to Christ, seeing you growing in Christ, seeing you on mission for Christ. I have just so much joy when I see your church, when I hear reports about what's going on there. Now, now listen, listen, loved ones. Complete my joy. Fill it up right up to the brim by being united, in particular, by giving attention to your attitude, to have a gospel-worthy attitude. He uses four different phrases here. 
that I think really drive at the same thing, having, having a loving attitude, being of the same mind, doesn't mean thinking the same way about everything. It's not a matter of intellect. Rather, the word being of the same mind, it speaks to, it's really more of a matter of the will. It's being united in will together, that Christ would be honored. It's being united in passion together for Jesus Christ. It's being united in ambition together that the gospel would go forward. That, that's the sense of that, that phrase there, to be of the same mind, to have the same love. It's, it's Christ has loved you, right? Is there, is, there, is there comfort from his love? Yes and amen. All right, well, then, then love one another. Let that love overflow out of your life to each other. Being of the same accord, it literally means being same-souled. Same soul. It's like, I am with you and I am for you. And you say the same to me. I'm, I'm with you and I'm for you. That's the idea there. We're, we're together. We don't see everything the same way, but we do see this the same way. The glory and the preciousness of the person of Jesus Christ. And that's produced a reality in us that's beyond human, human, human capacity to produce. And so we're for each other. We're same souled. And of one mind. It's actually almost identical to the phrase that he began this verse with. But I think the emphasis here may be a little more in terms of intent on a common purpose, a common goal, a common mission. The basics of Christian unity has to do with our attitude. Loved ones, you and I have got to have an attitude that desires uni- unity. Like you, we've got to want this. It doesn't come from us just deciding we want this. It comes from what God has given us in Christ. And it produces in us, he produces us desires that we've got to want to have harmony together. And this also is going to mean I'm going to, I may have to address my stinky attitude. Maybe you've got a dirty diaper down there in your attitude. Right, mom, dad? Those diaper genies are garbage. They don't, they don't, when we first had, we got this diaper, oh, this is great, this, they don't work. In fact, in some ways it makes it smell worse because the little perfume thing in there mixed in with whatever else is in there. I'd just rather have the diaper, I think. You got a dirty diaper in your attitude? Ask yourself this, is this my heart's desire? You say, Ross, I mean, you preach this. I still barely even understand what it means. Just read it again. Complete by joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do you desire that? This is the basics of Christian unity. Is this my desire? Is this my inclination? It's, it's going to require some things. Perhaps an attitude adjustment. It's going to require me to distinguish between primary things and secondary things. There's primary things about which I cannot bend and will not. So help me God. The authority of God's word, the nature of the atonement, the reality of the virgin birth, justification by faith. There are non-negotiables on which we, we cannot bend. But there's other things that are negotiable. And having this oneness requires sometimes discernment and wisdom to see the difference requires us to distinguish between prescriptions and preferences. The great physician has given us some prescriptions that we must follow. But we've also, all of us, have preferences. 
things we like. I like vanilla. You like chocolate. It's not wrong. It's just different. The reality is is that sometimes though we make things like that wrong and right. Requires us to distinguish between functions and forms. There are functions that we must, if we're to be faithful, carry out. Worship, discipleship, fellowship, ministry, evangelism. These are absolutely critical functions of the church. If we're not doing these things, we're not faithful. But the form that those things take can be different. There's liberty in that. And see, having this oneness of attitude, there's a recognition of that. There's a a willingness to see that. When our attitudes are stinky, these things get sticky. But when our attitudes accord with verse 2 here, it can be just beautiful. It's uncommon community. I remember one time, one of my, the first time I ever just woke up to this and saw something of this that I can remember was early on in my pastoral ministry. Uh, I was serving in a, in a community, in a rural community, and just, we love this place still. It's one of the, our dearest places in all the world, and, and uh, there's just many beautiful Christians there and some faithful gospel-preaching churches, and we're, we're just so grateful for that community. However, I say that because it's important for you to hear me say that, but at the same time, we were also aware that over history, over time, there has been in that community a lot of fighting amongst the churches. Lots of divisions. In fact, some of the churches came into being because of splits and unhappy divisions. They were not visionary plants, some of them. They were splits. Well, when I was there, I just had the, the real blessing of being able to connect with some other pastoral leaders in the community, and, uh, and one of them, not me, uh, one or two of them initiated just an effort for us just to get together and to just visit together, have fellowship together, and we would do that. And you know what happened is we would meet together. We're from different denominations, but we love the Lord. We agree on the main thing is the main thing, and we're together on those things. And, and we would meet together. We would have coffee and care for each other. And, and two, of these, two of these brothers, I would say to you too, are still to this day just very, very dear friends of mine. You know, just, just people who are just with you for the long haul kind of people. And... Um, so we, we're developing these kinds of friendships. And what happened is in time, one of, the, one of the pastors in the group had this idea about, hey, you know what we need to do? Let's get our churches together to pray. Let's get together and pray for our community. Like, oh, that's a great idea. Phenomenal. Yeah, great idea. So we get together and we got together these joint prayer meetings. We get together to pray. But here's the thing. I was so naive and so new. I had no idea the impact of this. I remember one night for one of these joint prayer meetings, we did a few, all of the pastors present, we all got up together and we put our arms around each other and we prayed together for our churches, for our communities. And I'm looking up in the, in the crowd and there's people who are weeping. And so I'm like, I'm, this is special. They must probably emotional people. This is, this is a special moment, I guess, yeah. But then it was explained to me and put together that, Ross, you don't understand. You don't understand the history here. The, divis- the divisions, the tension, the friction. One of the people who was weeping, if I remember right, said to me, she's like, I never thought I'd see this day when the Jesus-following, Bible-loving pastors of this community would be together in one place praying for each other. And it did something to me. I don't know I would have articulated it this way at the time, but it, I would articulate it now. 
the lesson for me in that is that unity cannot be taken for granted. And the lesson here is that it starts with the heart. The basics of Christian unity has to do with our attitude. And you see, as Paul shows us here in this text, there's something in particular about our attitude. There's a certain attitude especially that when it comes to being united is sometimes a barrier. In fact, it's often a barrier. Do you see what that attitude is? Verse 3, do nothing from what? Selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition, it's what I want. It's about me. A, a, a friend of ours once said, her, I think her, it was her best friend was dating some guy she, she saw was a jerk. And we asked him, what's your problem with him? His favorite word is me. <laughs> Not that, that, that'll preach. It's about me. And conceit, conceit is a, it's a puffed upness. It's kind of a bloatedness. Like, you know, just, just, just swelled up with, not with Thanksgiving turkey, but with self. What's the barrier here? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The barrier to Christian unity is self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. Selfishness, conceit. The focus is on me and what I want and what I think and what I like, what I desire. It's a barrier to unity. And, and self-centeredness or selfishness, it manifests itself in all kinds of ways. I mean, we can be, we can be selfish in our conversations, right? You have, when you have a conversation with a selfish person, <clears throat> what's the conversation always about? It's about them. It's about them. Now listen, don't go condemning yourself like, oh my God, I had a conversation with somebody already. All I talked about was me. Listen, it, it's okay. They might have really wanted to hear about you. You might have just been serving them by just, let me hear about you. It's okay. You don't need to get self, self-conscious about it, but what you do need to do is stand back and think about what, how much of my conversations are just about me? Sometimes we're self-centered with our time. I mean, time is precious, right? And there's wisdom in guarding it. But when was the last time I just said, let me do that for you? Sometimes we're self-centered with our money, forgetting it actually all belongs to God. And if we have trouble forgetting that, just think through, where is it going to be the day after you die? It won't be in your genes. Sometimes we're self-centered in our ministry. Ministry, even church ministry, it can become a means of asserting control, of using God's people or a ministry position to satisfy my need for affirmation or attention or notice. It becomes a matter of control and I lash out against people who challenge me. This happens to pastors. Happens to teachers, happens to servers, happens to ushers, happens to cleaners. Self-centeredness has many manifestations. Just want to ask you, are you, honestly, are you self-centered? Self-centeredness is sometimes ugly, often subtle. It's sometimes ugly. Think, for example, the poster boy for ugly self-centeredness in the Bible is a guy named Diotrephes. Say that name, Diotrephes. I don't even think I'm saying it right. Diotrephes, Diotrephes. Anyway, dude was selfish. 
If you've never heard of him, it's, you probably haven't read 3 John yet, your Bible. 3 John, the apostle says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, oh, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Can you imagine? Like, what kind of an inflated, egotistical guy was this? That he rejected the directives of the apostle John! He leaned into Jesus' breast. Jesus looked at him and said, take care of my mother. I'm not listening to John. I'm the pastor here. Ugly. He doesn't acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. Wouldn't you just pay money to be there for that? Oh, this will be good. This will be, I'm going to church today. So I'll bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that. So listen, see. So what's he doing? He's slandering the apostles. But he's like, and not content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers. And also stops those who, who want to welcome them. And puts them out of the church. Dude's a jerk. He was abusive. Dismissive. Created an atmosphere of fear demanding his own way, had to have the power, had to have the prominence, had to have the last word. Maybe you're married to somebody like that. Or maybe your spouse is married to someone like that. Or maybe your kids are growing up under someone like that. Arrogant, divisive, hurtful. The day Leanne and I got married, there was a devotional given I forget a lot about that day, a lot about what was said. I'm just gazing into her eyes. Can't believe she married me. Still can't. Told her that last night, wrote for a walk. Now, isn't that precious? It is. <laughs> Guys, the air sickness bags, you'll find them under your seat. <laughs> Devotional given, all I, remember it was, all I remember was this. The difference between the word United and untied is I. I. From being united, untied. That's diatrophies, and it's ugly. It's ugly. You, you marry a self-centered person, you're in for a miserable life. Young people, beware. Beware. You get in with a self-centered person, you're in for some misery. It can be ugly but it's often subtle. Here's what I mean by that. Even people who, you, who don't strike you as self-centered can, in the quietness of their heart, maybe even without them articulating it or having it occur to them, are very consumed with themselves in a sense that maybe doesn't show in obvious ways, but inside there's a war going on where they're craving for approval and acceptance and are driven, driven after, they're driven after finding or achieving some sense of self-worth. And they think it'll come by making a new friend or achieving something or accomplishing something. And the reality is it just... It just doesn't. It's, maybe it does for a time. It's like a hit. <gasps> Accepted. But two, three days later, I'm clamoring for acceptance again. 
Listen to this quote. <clears throat> I'm not going to tell you who this is. I've got reasons for it. If you, want, if you really want to know who said this, I'll tell you after. But here's a quote from an extraordinarily famous woman who's extraordinarily wealthy. Very famous, very wealthy. This is what she said. Listen to this. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is, that is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am a somebody. My struggle has never ended and I guess it never will. Now this person has got all the money that the world would think would be enough to make you happy. And got all the success and all the acclaim and all the fame that you think would finally scratch that itch. My struggle has never ended and I guess it never will. The drive to arrive at self-worth, to be a somebody is a bottomless pit and is often found in our own hearts and lives, in our fellowship, in our churches. Lots of people, lots of people who are famous are in bondage to this. Lots of people who are not famous are in bondage to this. It's a selfish ambition and conceit. It's subtle, though, because they're not necessarily elbow their way to the front kind of people. But we are ever and always enslaved to thinking about me. Subtle. So C.S. Lewis is credited as having written this prayer. Oh, to be free of me. How do we do that? Well, the breakthrough of Christian unity happens where there is humility. The breakthrough to Christian unity happens where there is humility. This is really obvious with the diatrophies of the world. Like, dude needed to humble himself. For goodness sakes, it's the Apostle John. And who are you? Some guy, we can't even pronounce your name. Paul says here in this text, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So it's not self-neglect, but it's a looking to others, an others' orientation about my life, looking not only to my own interests, but also the interests of others. Now, we're going to see some examples in, in Philippians 2 about this. We're going to read about Timothy. We're going to read about, Lord willing, about Epaphroditus. But the greatest of all examples, the one that comes next, the person of Jesus Christ who Peter, Paul is going to tell us he humbled himself. Look at verse 5. I'll get ahead of myself. Preach next week's sermon. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Happy Advent. And being found in human form, he, he, who? Who are we talking about? Who are we talking about? It's Jesus. God the Son. He, humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death, death on the cross. Humility. You say, Ross, okay, how, how, do, you, how do you cultivate humility? Well, one thing you do is you look to Jesus and you see him getting a vision not only of his humility but also being reminded of his glory is a phenomenal starting point. Friends, humility though doesn't come, understand this, I think it's so critical for you to see this. Humility doesn't come here from taking a low view of yourself. It comes instead from a true view of what we have in Christ. I take you back to verse 1. Encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. That's the basis. So, so to, get, to be humble, a lot of people think, well, if I'm going to be humble, I've got I to gotta have a low view of myself and try to beat up yourself. No, that's not going to do it. Where it comes from is not from a low view of self, but a true view of what we have in Christ. God has been abundantly generous toward us. And that's where our ability to be generous toward others comes from, from looking to Him. We love others because we have in our own hearts a love that's poured out into us by the Spirit of God from God the Father. In Christ, we're forgiven. We're counted righteous. We're a child of God. So I belong to him. I'm accepted by him. So therefore, I don't have to clamor for attention or approval or acclaim. Who who else needs to accept you if God says, I accept you? Who else? And would it really matter? Really? In the end, ultimately? I can joyfully walk in humility regarding others as more significant than myself because in Christ, the craving for approval and acceptance is satisfied in him. If I want to be be judged as a somebody, I am judged as a somebody in Jesus. I'm loved by the Most High and accepted because of Christ. And as I seek to perform to gain approval in God, Christ has performed, and on the basis of what he has performed, I have God's approval. It's like Timothy Keller puts it this way, I love it. He says, in Christianity, in Christianity, unlike any other worldview, the verdict comes before the performance. Everything else is the performance gives the verdict, right? I do good things, I feel better about myself, I get approval from others. That's not how it works in Christianity. It's not the, per- the performance that gets the, the verdict. The verdict is in. <laughs> Christ has died for you. Christ has performed the righteousness you and I could never have performed. And when we put our trust in him, the righteousness of Jesus is credited to our account. You're rich in righteousness because of what Jesus has done. So the verdict is in. God has judged you a somebody in Christ. You've arrived. You've arrived. You're accepted. And there's, there is nothing you can do from this day until the day you die to make God love you more. Amen. In fact, in all of our dirty diaperness this morning, his love for you and for me is as real and as intense today in Jesus as it will be a thousand years from now when we're perfected in heaven. Think about that. This is where humility comes from, from the basis, from basking in gospel truth, from trusting in Christ. I close with this from from Keller. It just, I think, just articulates these things so well. 
He says, because God loves me and accepts me, I do not have to do things just to build up my resume. I do not have to do things to make me look good. I, I can do things for the joy of doing them. I can help people just to help people, not to feel better about myself, not so I can fill up the emptiness. Now that's freedom. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Loved ones, dear loved ones, are there symptoms of self-centeredness in your life that need to be addressed? Like seriously. For most of us, it's going to take some reflection. You got to think about that. Maybe, be careful, maybe you'd ask somebody, somebody close to you, somebody you trust. I say be careful because if you're going to do this, then you have to ask God's grace to not be all wounded about it. But to see this, no, this is, I want greater freedom. I want greater joy. So, maybe you would ask somebody close to you, are there you see evidences of self-centeredness in my life? Now, if it's somebody close to you, too, who asks you this, be careful. Depending on the relationship, you may be tempted to say, oh, sit down, get out a pen and paper. You can't do that to them. What are the one or two things that really stand out that you just see? Are there symptoms of self-centeredness in your life? Will you examine yourself? on that? Will you reflect on this this question? Do you not have all that you need for approval and acceptance in Jesus? Do you not? Dear loved ones, here's my little homework assignment for you, okay? Some homework. You already gave me a bunch of homework. Yeah, one more thing. I'm a preacher. It goes in threes. Will you look to Jesus this week by reading ahead and just reading and thinking through Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. And as you read, just ask the Lord to show himself to you. Lord, open my eyes to see something here of you. Will you look to Jesus this week? Say, Lord, show me my sin. As I look on your righteousness, show me my unrighteousness. Not that I'd be defeated, but that I could repent and walk in freedom. Say, Lord, give me a passion for glory that comes from you and not from people. As I look to you, Lord Jesus, do away with my self-centeredness and cultivate in me humility. Father in heaven, we pray for this. Lord, as we look to you this morning, we are are a needy people. These are things that will make us or break us as a fellowship, Lord. We, We can see, Lord, from this text, we can see that there's There's glory to behold when your people walk in unity. But Lord, we acknowledge there's enough flesh in us. Lord, there's enough flesh in me to bring disrepute upon this church and to injure our fellowship together. Lord, I pray that this week that you would move us to look to you and open our eyes to see you, Lord Jesus. And Lord, that we would be transformed in the looking. I pray, Lord, that you would show us our self-centeredness. And that you give us grace to not be wounded by it, but to be repentant over it. And to walk by your grace in freedom from it. Lord, we ask these things of you in the matchless 
glorious name of Jesus. Amen.